Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. There's a book I love, a kind of cult classic in underground anthropology circles, called Wisconsin Death Trip. It's by the nonfiction writer Michael Lessie. First published in 1973, it describes the city of Black River Falls, a small rural Midwestern town which just so happens to have had an incredibly grisly and bizarre past. I'm not going to spoil Lessie's book in any way except to reveal one key aspect of it, the aspect that has kept readers returning for 50 straight years. The principle is simple, that nowhere, not even the most average of towns in the most unassuming of states, is what it seems that no matter where you go, the moment you scratch the surface, you're going to turn up bizarre stories of improbable natures that will haunt you long after you put the book down. The exact same principle applies to Keith Roysden's and Douglas Walker's new book, also set in an unassuming Midwestern town, Muncie, Indiana, home of Ball State University and a beacon of the glory years of America's auto industry. Cold Case Muncie, recently published by the History Press, grew out of Roysden's and Walker's longtime column for the Muncie newspaper, in which they investigated cases that had lain unsolved for decades, hoping to find new leads or bring some resolution where possible. Like Black River Falls, Wisconsin, you might think of Muncie, Indiana as yet another Anytown America. But after you hear about these cold cases, I assure you, you will realize that there is no such thing at all. Here to tell us why is Keith Roysden, co-author of the book. Keith, welcome to Crime Capsule and congratulations on your new book. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah. So a little bit of a spoiler here in that you are actually a Crime Capsule alumnus, but in a slightly different way. So it turns out that we actually ran an interview with you several years ago back when we were just a a print website, if if that makes sense, print website. Um, you know, we were working on your previous book, your book about the West Side Park murders. And uh, which covered the 1985 killing of Kimberly Dowell and Ethan Dixon. Uh, before we get into your current work, I was just curious for all of our uh, listeners who were once readers of the website and picked up that interview, is there any news in that case since we last spoke? You know, I've periodically been in touch with police there in Muncie. I'm, I'm in Knoxville now. But I've been in contact with police in Muncie and Delaware County. And uh, Nate Sloan, who was the police investigator and now police chief, who had worked so hard on uh, researching and, and redoing interviews and things like that uh, for the West Side book, said that he had, and this is the last I spoke to him, so it's been a few months, uh, said he had uh, heard a few people get in contact because we tried to put some method of contact with all of these cases. We did it with most of the chapters of the new book, Cold Case Muncie, and we did it. We included Sloan's email uh, with the Westside Park murders. And he said he'd heard from a few people, but strangely enough, it was people who were just echoing the kind of thing that 
that we'd already heard like, oh, that's it was the guy who rushed into a party and he was dressed like Rambo. Uh, you know, keep in mind, he has 1985. Uh, or, or it was, you know, this person or that person. It was, I was kind of gratified that we had touched on those stories in the book already and also disappointed that there wasn't anything that was really percolating uh, anew uh, about the uh, about the case. So, and I have heard when I was working on a cold case Muncie and sat down with a couple of longtime now retired police investigators right before um, we moved down here, um, one of them was just like almost, um, well, he's very outspoken in basically discounting the police's main suspect. Oh, wow. In, in the Westside case and just said, you know, that you guys got it wrong. The police have it wrong. And this is aside from the other veteran investigators who believe that the current, as current as a 36-year-old case can be, um, uh, investigator had it wrong. So so it's it's not been incredibly fruitful in the sense of something moving toward uh, some kind of resolution to it. It has been useful in getting people to uh, think about it again. Now, you guys had actually written, when I say you guys, I refer, of course, to your uh, your co-author, um, Douglas Walker. Now, you guys had written um, a person of interest who was actually incarcerated for a different uh, crime, a different murder um, at the time uh, that we last spoke, and you were kind of awaiting a response from him. Did you ever hear anything from Jimmy Swingley? We never did. At some point, I, I would occasionally check the Indiana Bureau of Prisons site. Uh, he was, and I haven't checked it in months, he was scheduled for, for release in 2030. Uh, I And that was for a homicide 11 years after the Westside Park slayings. Totally separate case. And uh, a murder he was convicted of and sent to prison again until 2030. For at some point after, uh, while well, I contacted him and I said, hey, you, did you know that you are the main suspect, the person of interest for Muncie police in the Westside Park lanes. And of course he knew that because the kind of the pivot point that clinched that we could go ahead and write the Westside Park book was that in 2018, uh, Nate Sloan, that police investigator, now police chief, had gone to a local court and got a warrant to go to the prison and take a DNA swab of the suspect. So he certainly knew he that was the second conversation the police had had with him. So he certainly knew he was a suspect. But I said, you know, I just because you got to keep it short and and I included a self-dressed stamped envelope so that he could respond if he wanted to and said, Did you know you're a suspect? You know, what do you think about that? Did you do it? Uh, why do they think you're a suspect if you're if you didn't do it and did not hear back? Um, I I'm kind of surprised I didn't hear back from any of his daughters or family members, but I I, I can't imagine what a painful uh, situation would be for your father or, or relative to uh, to 
already be in prison for one murder and be cited as uh, the the person of interest in two others. It's a remarkable story, and I certainly encourage our listeners to check out that particular volume because it is a really gripping tale, and you guys handle it beautifully. Now, when we left that interview, uh, we actually left it on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, um, I believe the last question was whether you and Douglas were working on another book. And at the time, you had left the question a little bit open. Um, I think it's safe to say that that question has been rather conclusively answered. And here we are uh, sitting with a copy of Cold Case uh, Muncie. Now, before we dive into that one, which we will just in, in just a second, uh, go ahead and tell us just a little bit about your other titles, because I know you've had a few with History Press. We actually kind of fell into this, to tell you the truth. We were both, in 2015, we were both working, Douglas Walker and I, and Douglas, Doug, I'm going to slip up and call him Doug, because that's how I know him. We've worked together since the late 1980s, and nobody has as much experience and the kind of incredible encyclopedic memory about local court cases, murders, things like that, that he does. He, he is the, the, the basically a framework of every one of the articles that we write about this kind of thing and, and every one of the, uh, the books. And um, so it was 2015 and it was the city of Muncie's 150th anniversary. And I did stories about 150 years of uh, local industry and 150 years of local hospitals and things like that. Because I was, in addition to covering government, I was covering business at the time. And Doug did a extremely abbreviated version of 150 years of Muncie crime. And Muncie has always been known as a pretty... Uh, crime-intensive city for a city of its size that at some point was close to 100,000 people. It's probably under 80,000 now. I think the population peaked in the uh, uh, 1970s. And like Youngstown, Ohio, and a lot of other cities that's really struggled with population loss and, and uh, uh, you know jobs and, and school enrollment and things like that. But uh, has always been statistically pretty high in um, crime. It, it, it's a safe, a safe city with a lot of really good people, and frankly, it's getting better and more diverse as the, the university, Ball State University, grows and the uh, IU Health uh, Health um, uh, Corporation grows. But um, Doug had done a as as brief as it could possibly be, history of crime, and um, someone from uh, History Press contacted him, and we had been running by that point for five years. We'd been running a series of articles about cold cases, and um, they said, "Hey, would you turn your book into?" Or would you turn your article series into a, a book about cold cases for us? And um, little did we know, it would be four more books before we would get to that point. You said, don't throw me in that briar patch, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, Doug turned to me and we decided, well, how about this? We'll do something with 
colorful and sometimes grim and sometimes just oddball uh, stories about Muncie's history, kind of the darker aspects of it. And um, after every book, so uh, Wicked Muncie was first, and that's the name of our Facebook page, by the way, where we do very sporadic updates on the books and, and our work. Uh, so after uh, Wicked Muncie, um, we pitched a second book that fell into uh, history's murder mayhem category. So uh, so we did uh, Muncie Murder and Mayhem. And about that point, uh, John Rodrigue, our, our acquisition editor at History, was saying, hey, what else would you like to do? And uh, we knew West Side seemed a natural for us to do because it is certainly the most notable of the long standing cold cases in Muncie. And after that, um, we talked to John and we said, okay, we did West Side, but between 2010 and about 2018, 2019, Doug and I wrote 30 articles about different unsolved cases in Muncie. So uh, working with John, we uh, turned that into the Cold Case Muncie book. There is, unfortunately, uh, a wealth of material to work for as far as um, cold cases. And we didn't even manage to do all the cases that we had um, covered in the newspaper. Plus, we did, we, you know, wrote new chapters on each one. We didn't rerun material. But uh, we also had several that we hadn't heard about when we were working on that series in the 2010s. And some that people were, were bringing to us because by this point, they knew that we would eventually probably have another book. Well, let me ask you this, because as I was reading Cold Case Muncie, you, you flagged this fairly early on, but it really was borne out in throughout the entire volume. Um, Muncie is kind of a violent place. And, and to what do you attribute this higher level of, uh, you know, you've got, you've got homicides, you've got kidnappings, you've got um, burglaries gone wrong, you know, you've got a lot of drug deals that end up going south. A lot of them in, in your book, a lot of these cases have some narcotic element kind of attached to them, you know, in, in, in a way, shape or form. Why, why Muncie and what, how do you chalk this up? I still have a very soft spot on my heart for Muncie. My son lives there, he goes to college there. Doug has a theory that I think is pretty interesting. Muncie, like a lot of Midwestern cities, I mentioned Youngstown earlier, but when you get further north, like Chicago and 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 Detroit and Gary, uh, a lot of cities really saw an influx of uh, new population in the first half of the 20th century. There's a wonderful book by Isabel Wilkerson named uh, The Warmth of Other Suns. Yes. and. Uh, it is about, she looks at a half dozen African-American folks from the South who decide to go North for better opportunities and to also to get away from uh, the Jim Crow and, and the vestiges of, of, I can't even say vestiges, the racism in the South. And um, 
Doug believes that there was kind of a betrayal of a lot of people who moved north to Muncie and to that area when some of these large corporations, and I'll, I'll cite the one that he always cites, Ball Corporation, which for many years made the ball canning jars and is an aerospace primarily now. Well, they actively recruited people from the South in the late 1800s when they opened their first canning jar factory in Muncie. They came from upstate New York and uh, came to Muncie. And the family has done a lot of wonderful things for the community. That's why the university is named after them. And, and um, the, overall, the, the influence of the Ball family has been uh, an entirely positive one on the city of Muncie. But one of the things that, that Doug notes is that the canning jar factories, which were then developed in other areas around there by other uh, corporations and all the auto parts manufacturers and things like that, really set up this expectation that there would always be these jobs. There would always be good factory jobs. And it was pretty calm. My dad worked at an at auto parts plant for 30 years. Uh, there was expectation. I didn't have this expectation, but there was expectation that when you graduated from high school, you didn't have to go to college. You would go right to uh, the plant where your dad worked. Starting in the early 60s, these plants started closing, and Ball Corp was really the first domino to fall. Uh, they closed their canning factory. They stayed in Muncie for another 30 years as far as their corporate headquarters went, and then moved to Denver, Colorado. But they don't have any, didn't have any for 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, any manufacturing capacity in Muncie anymore. Uh, Delco Battery followed them and left. Uh, by the time we're into the 2000s, we had uh, Borg Warner, you know, the Borg Warner Trophy at the Indy 500 is named after them. Borg Warner Automotive, um, Chevrolet, um, all these plants went away so that there were no big industrial employers. And Doug's theory is that the community and the large corporations in it um, really kind of got accustomed a few generations of people to the idea those jobs are always going to be there. When they went away and started dwindling, at some point, Borg Warner, where my dad worked, they employed nearly 6,000 people in the 1950s. I mean, a huge economic driver for the city. And everybody else had thousands of workers. When all those plants started going away, a lot of people, they either moved, they found some other gainful employment, or as Doug notes, they started getting in trouble. Uh, you know, a lot of them had some kind of probably health issues, uh, like a lot of us do now. And uh, some of them, uh, you know, I mean, we had a huge uh, Oxycontin issue in Muncie for a long time. We had meth issues. People turned to, without jobs, they turned to crime. They turned to um, various kinds of lawlessness. And 
drugs certainly factor into a lot of the cases that we've written about over the years. Not all, of course. I mean, money is a big factor, too, although those are frequently intertwined. But Doug's theory is that the rug was kind of pulled out from under uh, a lot of people in Muncie over the decades. And maybe it was slow enough, and it was slow enough, that some people could find a soft landing, but others did not. So, you know, the crime happened and, and you know, poor family units happened and, and uh, schools failed and, and, you know, just a lot of really ill effects. When you have a major manufacturing base like that suddenly evacuate, you know, from a region, the the effects are they are catastrophic, and the ripple effects go far far beyond, you know, just the mere loss of employment. I mean, it, it spreads into so many different sectors, and it, it certainly, as I was reading, you know, made me realize that uh, for all of the kind of any town America vibe that you might have expected to find in a city in central Indiana, you know, it ain't Mayberry, right? And it, and it, it never will be again, even if it ever was just to start with. And it's kind of an interesting portrayal that you have there. Now, of course, one of these knock-on effects of the loss of, of uh, capital in the region and, you know, public resources and so forth is the strain that then reaches the the law enforcement, right, the, the city services. And uh, you describe that in one of the earliest chapters of your book that the if you look at the, the sort of overall picture, the bird's eye view of what it's like for law enforcement to try to pursue these cases and solve these cases and so forth, the numbers, uh, the clearance rates, just pure clearance rates alone, are not what anybody would expect. Um, that they are far lower than than you would perhaps assume. You know, a, a medium sized police force, uh, you know, in a, in a decently large town <laughs> would be able to achieve. And, and you just come right out and say it. You say, you know, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of cold cases all across America that have yet to be solved. And here in Muncie, we are absolutely representative of this kind of averaging a 50-50 shot at whether a case is going to get solved. Can, can you help us to see those those numbers in a bit more detail or clarity? I was really startled by this. As we were working on the, uh, uh, the cold case book, we were looking at numbers and were shocked by how bad they were. It's eye-opening, Keith. I mean, it's really, it really kind of takes you by surprise. I mean, I just thought, frankly, that there would be a, a lower number overall, and I expected that the clearance rate would be higher. And boy, oh boy, was I wrong. It, it is startling. I mean, you kind of live with the numbers. You kind of make peace with the numbers when you um, when you cover it on a daily basis almost. Um, uh, uh, Doug recently had a story about three bodies being found. This is in the past couple of a couple of months. Three bodies being found in a house in Muncie, and it was probably two murders and a suicide. I had tweeted his story, and a friend of mine on Twitter said, "I think what I'm most shocked by was this is the third year in a row that there's been a triple homicide in your town." 
And I said, yeah, I mean, because Doug included that information in there is, is, is in the history, is, which is a good thing to have. But so you kind of get in your head that things are a certain way, but you don't really think about it too much. And then when we were working on this book, we started looking at national statistics. And we go into some of these numbers in the cold case book, but um, uh, Project Cold Case uh, reporting and, you know, things taken from the, the FBI's Uniform Crime Report found uh, really only about a 50%, like you said, about a 50% clearance rate for cold cases, for homicides, I mean. So that's 50% uh, cold cases. And it's startling that this is a case and then you think, you know, maybe it's not because you've got a certainly a culture of people who they fear for their lives if they are going to get involved in something or um you know people clear out you know if they know something they they get out of the area they get out of town um sometimes and this is the thing that that frightened local authorities the most was that and we mentioned this in the west side book Sometimes there's a concern that someone comes into town, commits a murder like the Westside Park murders, and then leaves. And they're in some other state, uh, maybe as with uh, the Westside Park case, the murder um, doesn't get solved, but the person who is the suspect is uh, incarcerated for something else. Sure, so they keep they stay in trouble rather than get out of it. Yeah. They stay in trouble, but they're in prison. They're in prison, and they certainly have no motivation to bring any light to a past case because they're anticipating being in there for decades. Um, you know, the worst case scenario is that, at least for families and for victims and law enforcement, is that. I, and carry that secret with them to the grave, and a case will never be solved. So let's take a look at one. Uh, there's a few cases that, that I'd like to cover. We'll pick up a few more next week, but there's one that struck me uh, in this particular volume, and it is the holidays as we are sitting down, and there's a particular case that you call the holiday homicide, um, which was the murder of a lady named Ruby Dean Moore. And this was interesting because this took place almost exactly 60 years ago um, that uh, Miss Moore's body was found. So who who exactly was uh, Ruby? And what were the circumstances in which uh, she disappeared and was then later uh, discovered? Ruby was one of the people that we have tried to do with all these books, but especially with a cold case book, because with the West Side book, um, those are high profile people from high profile, high profile families. You know, the, the one was the son of an industrialist. The other was a daughter of a doctor. But there are so many. And I just have to always believe that part of this contributes to the idea <clears throat> that these cases don't get solved. There are so many people who were not greatly 
paid attention to at the at the time they were living. They weren't their deaths were not paid a lot of attention to. So Ruby was somebody who had um, whose body was found in a ditch line, uh, as you said, the week before Christmas, nineteen sixty four. So going on a big anniversary for that. She had just kind of disappeared. It wasn't the first time that she had disappeared. So the family wasn't overly concerned. But finally, after a few days, her husband had um, reported her missing. And, but they said, well, she's probably gone to Ohio. And again, it always is the case that the less attention somebody gets in the early stages of these cases, the harder it is then to come up with something afterward. Yeah, there's a ratio there, isn't there? And we we saw this in in the inverse um, last week when we had Jesse Pollock describing a murder in New Jersey that too much attention of the wrong kind early on compromised the investigation for years to come. But similarly, not enough attention early on just never gives the case a shot at all. Yeah. And uh, I mean, she was somebody who had like the people we were talking to earlier had been born in Kentucky, even though that's a border state right south of Indiana. She had moved north uh, to, in 1940 and had married a World War II vet and had worked, and she'd had some issues with public intoxication and a couple of other arrests. It was all misdemeanor stuff, the kind of thing that that you, know, you could expect for a mid-century Midwestern, you know, woman who worked as a cook or a waitress or something like that. And, um, but the investigation just kind of stalled and we were unable to really say why in the book. So this is where one of those, uh, this is one of those instances where um, the postscript comes well after the book is printed. And I, you and I haven't discussed this. When we were back in Muncie in August, when the um, Cold Case Muncie book came out, a man, we did several talks at local library and, and a couple of, of, of uh, Ball State University related facilities and at a, a couple of uh, rotary type events, a Kiwanis event. And it was at a Kiwanis event where a, a gentleman, an older gentleman, and I'm one myself, but he's even older than me, um, comes up and says, I want to talk to you about the Ruby Dean Moore case. And so we were all ears, and he talked to Doug most of the time because I was talking to someone else. And it turned out that he was, he had in his hands a scrapbook. Oh. And it was a scrapbook that he had kept since 1964. Oh. He was an investigator on her case. Wow. And he still had, I mean, this would have been amazing to know this before we wrote the book, but you know, you can only work with what you got. He had crime scene, he had crime scene photos and notes and things like that, that he had kept for himself for God, I went into journalism, so I didn't have to do math, but for 59 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, wow. um, and he said that they were pretty certain that they had a suspect and they made a case and took it to a deputy prosecutor who pretty much dismissed it. 
I mean, it, it, you probably know the relationship between police investigators and prosecutors is... It's never like 100% warm, you know? It's, no. It, it, I mean, yeah. oh my gosh. We, we used yeah. to have a deputy prosecutor, Muncie, who would send cases back to investigators. And that put him on their uh, bad list for, uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, but but this had pretty much been dismissed out of hand by this deputy prosecutor, and the case just didn't really go any further. And certainly the, the coverage, the quality of coverage in the newspaper varied greatly depending on who the staff was. I'd like to think that the two of us and a few other people have done a better job or did do a better job beginning in 1980s, 1990s and going forward. But for some reason, the paper didn't, who really wants to line up to get the grief that you'll get back when you keep busting the chops of local police investigators and local prosecutors for failing to uh, follow through on, a, on a, a, a homicide. And frankly, Muncie had so many that it could be kind of distracting. I mean, if you wanted to concentrate on a killing and try to determine why it didn't move forward. Well, you know, and, and I, we noted in one of the earlier books, there was a single day, I believe in 1967, in Delaware Circuit Court, there were three men who were in court that day for having killed their wives for one kind of hearing or another, you know, different stages of their criminal process. And Muncie had, you know, which had its reputation as a, you know, it's Little Chicago. A lot of cities kind of claim that that title, Little Chicago, because of crime and corruption. Muncie may actually have earned that title, but um, things got balls got dropped, and people changed their jobs. And every time a new sheriff was elected or a new prosecutor was elected, priorities shifted. So Ruby Moore just did not. Uh, get the kind of attention that she should have. Occasionally, an anniversary story in the newspaper and then the chapter in our book. But, uh, I mean, it's it's awful. It's terrible. And one of the things we really wanted to do with these, with this cold case book in particular, we really wanted to center the survivors. And in that case, I don't think we found anybody, any survivors. We Post-book publication, we found this cop who still cared very deeply. But um, we wanted to center the, not just the victims, but the survivors. And also, because there are plenty of uh, police investigators and prosecutors and judges who really wish that there would be some resolution to these cases, not just the high-profile ones like of the, the two rich kids from the Westside Park book, uh, but even people like Ruby Dean Moore. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that seems so and i really hate that i have to say this keith i'm gonna say it and I, it gives me no pleasure whatsoever to say it but one of the things that seemed so uh damnably stereotypical about this particular case was that there was a suspect but the case file was lost and then there were scant records and then nobody could find anything and they just it's this kind of you know you're trying to get blood from a stone you're there's there's just so little to go on from the actual 
outset that of course you know coming to it decades down the road i mean what what threads do you have to pull on you know and it, it's a very frustrating that comes up time and again in your in your book uh, which is why it's so important to bring these back to light we were lucky with the west side park book and that um and again you know maybe because the killing of two teenagers 16 and 15 were so horrendous and uh, maybe because they were well known, I mean, huge funeral processions, things like that, to the big downtown Methodist church. But uh, the files had already been, had always been preserved. Uh, when Nate Sloan, the investigator who really pursued that case in the 2010s, um, started the case because it was standard for a really bright and promising. Muncie police investigator to um, kind of be encouraged by the police chief, whoever it was at the time, to begin looking at these old files for various cases. And Nate did an incredible job. And, but he had, he said, you know, I spent two weeks in a room going through all these files. Well, I can guarantee you there was not a file box, no less 20 full of reports and evidence about Ruby Dean Moore or a lot of the people that we write about, which makes it harder for us. Uh, and we write about this a little bit in a book, but it's it's harder for the actual people that need access to that because, I mean, they didn't let us sit there and go through files or anything like that. Um, you know, we don't want to do anything that's going to compromise and again, a future investigation. But... Um, but most damning for the uh, for the investigators who would like to pick up those threads, like you mentioned, and sometimes years later and see where they go. And we talk about that a little bit in the book. Well, let's leave it there for now. We will leave that thread hanging and come back next week because there are some cases that have some really unusual elements that I want to ask you about, um, some very curious uh, patternings and so forth. Um, so we'll we'll come back to that. But for now, uh, thank you so much for helping us to to see the measure of the problem, and hopefully we can also kind of get into some potential uh, remedies for the problem next week as well. But we will see you then. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Keith Royston, co-author along with Douglas Walker of Cold Case Muncie, recently published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Keith. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? 
I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.